Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. Resolution season is upon us, and there's no limit to the books, apps, YouTube videos, masterclass seminars, and pyramid schemes that promise to teach you how to stick to positive habits. But as Megan O'Geeblin writes in the January 2022 issue, there's a less punishing, more fulfilling way to think about routine that has nothing to do with boosting productivity and won't kill spontaneity. O'Geeblin argues that routine can be spiritual, a way to create space for contemplation, and a shield against the semi-psychotic logic of algorithms. I spoke with O'Geeblin about the history of habit, the false promises of automation, and the 1993 film Groundhog Day. Here's our conversation. At the heart of this essay is a curiosity you summarize as follows. Quote, is it possible in our age of advanced technology to recall the spiritual dimension of repetition, or has it been conclusively subsumed into the deadening drumbeat of modern life? End quote. Spirituality is a word with nebulous connotations and one that means vastly different things to different people. So maybe we could start by asking what you mean by that. Yeah, I think part of what led me to write this essay was trying to figure out that question, you know, and I, I, I think I've always had sort of this vague sense that there is something spiritual or that even sort of there's like a component of religious devotion to habits. I, I read in the piece, I'm like a very habitual and routine driven person in my own personal life. And, you know, just from like what I eat every day tends to be the same. I, you know, exercise, I sort of have blocked like the same route every day for the past 10 years. And yeah, I've always felt that there is something sort of spiritual or maybe like an ascetic quality to, to strict routines. And, and you find these kind of habits a lot in, you know, athletes or artists as people who are devoted to very demanding vocations and essentially try to streamline their lives as part of that pursuit. So that, that was one aspect of it I was curious about. Then the, the other thing was just sort of this, I guess, for lack of a better term, moral development, this idea that when you do actions repeatedly, they become easier over time. So, you know, mm -hmm. if you want to make a resolution to say exercise more or to sort of volunteer more time in your community or something of that sort, you know, it, it tends to be very difficult at first and requires a lot of willpower. But then the more you do it and sort of build it into your routine, it becomes almost thoughtless. So there's sort of a, a ease and fluidity. And then especially, I think I'm interested too in like when it comes to giving up things, you know, if you try to give up, you know, alcohol or sugar or social media, this idea that you can actually change your cravings or your desires for something over time by abstention. Yeah, I mean, I I found this essay fascinating for a lot of reasons, but specifically because I am someone who is very <laughs> disorganized in my personal life. But at work, it's like, okay, got to get the weekly review done, got to get the podcast done, got to, you know, like I can do, I can pull it off when I'm at work. But in my own personal life, it's just like, I believe you mentioned that the Stoics called it stultitia, stultitia. I think that's as good of a pronunciation as I would suggest. It's a dead language. Who cares? But it's 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 this fickleness and boredom and a continual shifting of purpose. And that's at one point you say, you know, I used to be someone who kind of didn't have that routine down and now I do. And it's always interesting 
to hear how you transform into that without necessarily getting into self-help. Thinking about that transformation in a maybe in the active routine, that's not just sort of like a extra verse from Radiohead's fitter, happier. <laughs> right. Because that's really what life hacking, life hacker stuff is right now. Yeah, there's definitely like a life hacker dimension to habit too, where you know, you even have these books, like sort of self-help books about habit, like James Clear's Atomic Habits, or Charles Duhigg wrote this book, The Power of Habit, that was mm -hmm. really popular several years ago, which is all about like how to harness habit to become more productive in your life. Right. And there is a way in which it it's framed sometimes, I think, as this very modern phenomenon, like, oh, you know, it's a way to building specific habits as a way to avoid decision fatigue or sort of these endless choices that, that we're confronted with in our daily lives. But yeah, it was really interesting to go back and read, you know, the Stoics and to read that you mentioned Seneca and his letter to Lucretius. He talks about this phenomenon, Stultitia, this idea that, you know, too much freedom of choice or like sort of too much spontaneity at a certain point, it paradoxically becomes enslaving where your life actually becomes much more difficult when you have to decide like from scratch every day, what am I going to do with this hour of my life? Or what am I, you know, mm -hmm. what is my day going to look like? And it's funny that you mentioned too, like the distinction between order at work versus like in your personal life. I think part of the issue for me too, and yeah, I have gone through periods in my life where I was like much more, where my life was like much more of a mess and not structured in any way. <laughs> But I think I'm interested in the way in which like those distinctions between work and, and personal life are like bleeding into each other now where like, oh, totally, people, especially yeah, right people, now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, I, I was one who I was working at, I, you know, sort of nominally call myself a gig worker. I, you know, I'm a freelance writer and I, I'm an adjunct instructor. So my life doesn't have a lot of external stability. I'm like relying on contract work and and sort of these other very unpredictable factors and then yeah work I've worked from home before the pandemic and then during the pandemic my life became much more isolated and I think there's a way in which like the craving at least for me like the craving for habit and for some sort of systematic way of living is a response to this like technological disruption where you know like there's no clear start and end to the work day you know I'm like right. basically responsible for my own days there's no clear division between the week and the weekends like I could mm -hmm. ostensibly you know just like binge watch Netflix all day and then stay up all night <laughs> and finish my work and I think I, I very quickly realized like that that's not a sustainable way to live so I, I think I, I'm interested in the way in which you know habit and we can talk about this more later but that habit is often seen as machine-like that we're mm -hmm. like becoming very rigid and inflexible in the same way that the machines are but then it's also in in a weird way sort of a response to digital technologies and the way that they've transformed our lives yeah i mean you're skeptical of the idea that repetition is inherently less human than or in fact opposed to qualities like intuition, curiosity, creativity, and imagination. You sort of trace the intellectual history of this, but really it comes into sharp focus with the first industrial revolution and the, the idea that, oh, you're just a mindless automaton. But in fact, as you argue, and this is very true, a lot of mindless tasks, quote unquote, mindless tasks, that's when we do our deepest thinking. 
And, you know, when you're driving a car and you're kind of on autopilot, a little dangerous, but you can have all sorts of thoughts and have this time to yourself to just really indulge in things while still, you know, sort of moving through your life. And I, I wonder how you would relate repetition to, you know, like intuition or curiosity or creativity or imagination in your own experience of habit and routine as a writer and a freelancer. Is your idea that one can bring imagination into the experience of repetition? Or is it more like these are incompatible experiential modes, but equally valid and valuable? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. I, I think I was really interested in, yeah, the way you described how, in a way, you can have these really creative or intellectual experiences when you're doing sort of rote tasks like driving or walking you know I think like a lot of writers I come up with a lot of ideas when I'm doing those tasks walking in particular where you know your, your body is sort of going through the motion and your mind is is freed up to think about you know sort of these higher level abstract questions and I think there's yeah, there's a, a way in which we even talk about that process or our ability to do that in mechanistic terms. Like we often, I think the term that's often used is like outsourcing, like you're outsourcing your intelligence to your muscle memory or something, you know, so that, you know, you don't have to think about sort of each individual step you're taking, your body just kind of moves on its own. And there's a way in which that's really similar to what we do when we program machines, you know, you sort of program a procedure into a machine and then you don't have to think about it because it's, it's doing the work for you. Right. Yeah. And, and you mentioned like the, the first industrial revolution, that was really sort of the origin of this idea that, that habit was mechanical somehow because it was thoughtless. And this was like seen as a threat to our humanity in a lot of ways, because, you know, when you're acting without thinking, you are in some sense an automaton and this was, you know, caused a lot of anxiety during the time of people were transitioning to factory work and working along machines. And there was this fear that people were becoming more machine-like even in their private lives after they, mm -hmm. they left the factory and went home. And then, you know, there was also, I think at the, the same time, sort of this, this hope, and this is something that still persists today that if we could just like push through this phase of automation and get to the next stage, the machines would be able to do virtually all of our work and we wouldn't right. have to work alongside them anymore. Right. So there's this promise of like total liberation that you find, like I, I talk about Oscar Wilde's essay on socialism, where he imagines this future where machines are going to do all the dreary monotonous work and, and people will be freed up to, you know, create art or have more leisure time. And we, you know, then be able to fully reclaim our humanity. Right. Yeah. Obviously, fully automated luxury communism, another sort of <laughs> revitalization of that idea. One part that really stuck out to me was when you were talking about the CEO of Netflix talking about the role of disruption. But when we talk about disruption, what we really mean is that Uber becomes the new middleman, or Seamless becomes the new middleman, or Netflix becomes the new blockbuster. You know, it's like, is this supposed flexibility that tech stars preach? Is it like a form of planned obsolescence, or is it actually really about creating a better, a better world? Because presumably, you know, again, if we if we believe in this model of constant improvement, we'll hit a point where 
we're all good. But there still needs to be disruption for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this is really, I guess this is sort of another starting point for the piece for me. There's the, sort of the personal angle, my own questions about habit. And then there's this rhetoric that I encountered a lot in tech criticism. So I was writing a book about technology for the past five years and so sort of came across these conversations about automation where the argument was basically like, if you want to have a job in the future, you've got to learn to be flexible, adaptable, spontaneous, because machines are going to take over all of the sort of like routine monotonous work. So the jobs that will be left are going to involve these sort of higher level creative skills. There's like a practical form of that argument where it's like, yeah, if you want to have a job, this is what you should work on. These are going to be the jobs of the future. What I was interested in is the way in which that argument sort of took on these more lofty existential or even like quasi-spiritual tones where people mm. were saying, AI is actually going to make us more human because we're going to be able to, you know, be freed from this drudgery and embrace our core human strengths, which again are like, yeah, flexibility, adaptability. And I, I was initially skeptical of that just because it's like, well, we're, we're going to redefine what it means to be human, first of all, just based on what machines happen to not be able to do right now. Right. And then, yeah, the larger thing, going back to sort of like the Netflix CEO and that whole dimension of it is there's a way in which that this rhetoric about flexibility is actually serving the interests of corporations. And it's, it's not necessarily a response to the capacities of these technologies. It's more so the needs that they have for a flexible workforce in an age of disruption and innovation, you know, this idea that they need people who can respond very quickly to redefine job descriptions or learn new technologies on the fly. A lot of times the rhetoric about flexibility is actually used to justify the eradication of corporate policies and provisions, right. you know, stable contracts, things mm -hmm. like this. So there's a way in which this whole shift that's taken place in employment trends over the past decade or so, you know, this move to gig work, remote work, and outcome-based management is all sort of justified by this very lofty rhetoric about, you know, we're going to actually become more human by sort of letting go of these rigid routines that we've had to maintain in the past. Yes, being in a state of constant panic about A, what you are actually supposed to be doing, or B, when you're getting paid. That's actually, you know, it takes you back to like the hunter-gatherer days. Like, am I going to be able to eat? Like, what? I mean, it's, uh, it's absurd. And again, I think a lot of people have identified with remote work this complete, you know, you were talking about this before, this complete destruction between these different spheres of life. Not that the home has, I mean, the home has always been a site of work and uh, I'm, I'm willing to fight anybody who says otherwise, but it's now it's getting to this point where it's like, well, I get up, I roll out of bed, I go to my computer. And then when I'm done working on that computer, I watch movies on that computer and the barrier has been eroded. And so, you know, you'll either overwork or just, underwork and there's there's it's it's hard to kind of strike that balance but more more problematically there's also the potential for your employer to sort of start tracking how you spend your time and that's the real sort of like you know they'll create habits for you you know this that it's not actually coming from you at all right well that's the other thing too the technologies themselves 
they create this need for, for routines, but then they also, there's, I think there's a lot of anxiety about the way in which this technology sort of like nudge us into mm-hmm. certain habits and routines. So like I talk about Kevin Russa, the New York Times technology columnist, he wrote a book last year, I believe called Future Proof. And, and he talks about this phenomenon of what he calls machine drift, which is the the way in which like technology sort of nudge us into patterns of behavior that are very repetitive. I guess like the most obvious example is like social media where we are sort of like these, these rats pulling levers. And, (laughs) but it's also, you know, the ubiquity of prediction engines and the fact that these algorithms are, you know, trying to figure us out and, and suggest things that we're going to like based on our previous behavior. So it's like, you know, if you, if you like this song, here are 10 other songs that are exactly like it. So we get sort of stuck into these, Bruce is making the case that we get stuck into these patterns that are more monotonous and rigid than they would have been in the past. Um, and that we have to like make conscious choices to break out of those habits and try to like seek out new things. I mean, and this speaks to, you know, technology structuring our lives in repetitive ways. When I was reading this piece, I, I kept thinking about how far most of us are from the enduring habits of you know, the Benedictine monks that you discussed at the beginning of the piece. And our repetitions seem so much shorter and more prone to change. Again, social media being the obvious point here, but it's even like a user interface thing where it's like, well, wait, how do I log into this thing? Wait, no, it's completely different. Da, 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 da. Like this constant updating isn't real spontaneity, but it does keep habits from fully cementing. How do you think it interacts with this more spiritual dimension of routine and habit that you're considering? Yeah, that's interesting. And something I don't know that I totally considered too, but yeah, that just the constant change in technologies. I mean, even something like as simple as, you know, I really dread doing updates on my phone because (laughs) I just finally figured out where everything is and it's all going to change. And it's, you know, we we just sort of have like learned to adjust to these changes in, you know, our technologies. And I think it does in, in subtle ways change the way that we operate in our lives. And so, yeah, there is, you know, I, I talk about sort of the, how a lot of people trace modern routines and habit back to medieval monks and, the Benedictine orders in particular, where they were sort of the first ones to come up with this idea that you could do the same thing at the same time every day, and that you could live Mm -hmm. a life that was ordered around the clock. And this was supposed to be like a lifetime commitment, you know, it wasn't just I mean, they had like sort of it varied by the season and everything, but every, every day for the most part was, was supposed to be the same in perpetuity. And for us, you know, I think that people even if you have a tendency like I do to sort of gravitate toward habits, they don't tend to be that long lasting, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's something that it, it, maybe part of the appeal of habits for me is this idea that it is going to make my life more rooted in like this very old way, right. You know, that it's yeah. going to like tie me to a community or, you know, enrich my life in, in that way. And I think in most cases in reality, it ends up being, more transient, more, you know, depending on, again, just sort of the general instability of my life and my work and the technologies that I'm using. And I think that for the most part, the the attraction we have to habits now, even if it is for something more, you know, stable and rooted, it ends up being sort of this more like self-actualization 
you know, this, this form of like self-improvement, like I'm going to, you know, take on some sort of a new diet or exercise regime or something like that mm -hmm. to transform my life, which is very different. Yeah. From this older spiritual practices that you find not only in the, the Benedictine ones, but I guess going back to like the Stoics. Yeah. Did you do any research into the origins of the term habit? Because, you know, when you discuss the idea of habit, it's quote mindless. And, you know, with the Industrial Revolution, I found myself wondering how much the concept itself was, you know, shaped by the rise of machine labor. You know, did the ancients talk about habit in the sense that we use the term or really did the Benedictines just invent this totally new way of, of, of being? Yeah, no, I did look into it. And I, as I mentioned too, I relied a lot for the sort of the history of habit on Claire Carlisle's history of habit. She wrote this mm -hmm. really great, slim, very elegant book that is still sort of what major philosophers have said about habit. And she, and I think a lot of the sort of contemporary writing about habit usually goes back to Aristotle and this idea of second nature. And he wrote about habit in largely positive terms, you know, that it was a way of sort of unifying the will or ensuring that your desires were aligned so that you sort of practiced. It was a way of, I guess, practicing moral virtue so that it became almost innate. So even the, the term second nature is often traced back to Aristotle, this idea that you have, you know, sort of your default method of living that comes naturally to you and you do thoughtlessly. And then if you commit yourself to practicing certain moral virtues, over time, those become second nature so that those become sort of just as fluid and unthinking as the things that you would have ordinarily done in your default mode. And it's an idea that that idea actually recurs. The, the thing that's really interesting, I, I talk about a few different thinkers that are from like very different contexts. I talk about Aristotle and the Roman Stoics. I talk about Felix Reveson, who's a 19th century French vitalist philosopher, and also William James. But, but there's a lot of coherence, I think, despite all these different schools that they came from in different centuries they're writing in um, about sort of the, the benefits of habit. And also the dangers of habit, which they all acknowledge to the way in which habit can sort of slip into habituation, into addictions or compulsions. But yeah, this idea of like naturalizing a behavior is something you find a lot in ancient and medieval thought. Felix Reveson too, he talks about how when you're acting habitually, you're, you're sort of acting the way that a lot of the natural world acts, the way that like animals act by instinct or even like plants or these sort of natural forces like the rotation of the planets and things like this, that the natural world functions largely thoughtlessly and mm -hmm. that humans are sort of uniquely burdened with self-consciousness and will and that habit is actually a form of grace and that allows us to return to this sort of more fluid, unthinking way of, of living. And I found that to be a really interesting alternative to the idea that like thoughtless actions or habitual actions are mechanistic, you know, because I think when we see somebody acting automatically or, you know, thoughtlessly, we tend to think that they're being machine-like. I like the idea that you can see it also as being sort of a second nature or something that, that is, has more in common with the natural world, um, but it's like a form of embodied intelligence.
And, you know, sort of related to that, you know, you discuss the ALM hypothesis, which you describe as an interesting example of how we tend to define the idea of routine tasks by reference to how easy are how easy they are to, to automate. Could you explain that hypothesis for our listeners? And then there's an implication in this idea that AI allows us to automate more and more activities in our our idea of routine will change so that things that once seemed creative will start to look repetitive and mechanical too. So like, you know, your, your Gmail suggesting uh, how you should respond to an email. Right, right. Yeah, this was an attempt to sort of trace back this rhetoric about how, um, you know, we need to be more flexible and spontaneous if we want to have jobs in the future. And this idea that routine work is going to be automated and so, yeah, this, this is basically goes back to this paper that was published in 2003, popularly known as the ALM hypothesis. It's an acronym that stands for the author's name. It was written by three economists, David Autour, Frank Levy, and Richard Murnane. And they basically argued that the skills that were going to be easiest to automate going forward were those that were routine. So in the paper, the term routine had a very specific meaning. It wasn't just tasks that were repetitive. It was a a task was considered routine if the person who does it, the worker can basically explain what they do in a series of clear steps. And the logic was that if you can do that, if you can lay out in language what you do in a series of clear steps, then you can program it into a computer, which I guess like 20 years ago was a logical enough conclusion. But Mm. there's, there's a few problems with the hypothesis today, which is, well, the first thing is that I think a lot of people, like as this paper made its way into popular culture, into the political and business sectors, people tended to use the word or take the word routine in its more popular definition of just tasks that are repeatable. So this was how like Barack Obama talked about routine in a 2016 interview about automation. He said, you know, basically any, any job that is repeatable or that involves repeatable tasks is going to be automated. And that broader definition, it's like, it can be applied to almost any job. Basically, mm-hmm. I think any, any type of work, even very high level creative stuff tends to be, you know, repetitive to one degree or another. And, you know, I did like a New York Times search of, of articles about automation from the past 10 years and jobs that were considered routine, you know, according to this larger definition included everything from teaching to medical diagnoses to the work that home health aides do, including like cooking and mm-hmm. helping patients get out of bed. And a lot of those skills would not be considered routine according to that original thesis, because a lot of them rely on tacit knowledge. So, right. you know, there's like, I don't think I could explain to you how I walk in a series of clear <laughs> steps or like how I, you know, drive a car, even these, these sort of skills that seem very simple from the outside, but they're actually difficult to break down into concrete steps. And this is the case for a lot of the jobs that, you know, like janitorial work or, or positions in the service industry sort of what we tend to think of as jobs that might be vulnerable to automation. But the second problem, which is, I think, sort of the bigger problem is that technology is now developed beyond the point where it needs concrete steps like that. So the, this hypothesis was published before the machine learning revolution. 
And a lot of the AI now that's being incorporated into, you know, education and the justice system and finance, all all sorts of different places where it should not go. Exactly. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Yes. But these these programs, uh, you know, you basically like just feed them a boatload of data and they start making conjectures and connections on their own. And the people who are using them actually have no idea how they reach their conclusions. So it it doesn't, it's not a matter of like breaking down work into specific steps. You know, it's when it comes to things like vision recognition, vocal recognition, language processing algorithms, those sorts of technologies, you know, they're learning in a way that's really mysterious to us. It's almost like they're developing sort of a tacit knowledge of their own. So, you know, and a lot of this, a lot of those more recent AI programs are able to do stuff that is very like high level creative tasks. You know, there's been an explosion in in natural language processing algorithms where you have, Mm -hmm. you know, algorithms that can write sonnets and short stories that appear very, you know, convincing as though they're written by a human. So this idea that like creativity or spontaneity is somehow this like you know, last sort of bastion of human intelligence. Like, I I think that that is really unstable given the recent technological developments of the past several years. Yeah. And I mean, I guess without that sense of superiority or, you know, as AI develops and becomes implemented in more and more places, how do you see our ideas of habit changing with that if again, if we are, if we're no longer able to say that, you know, I have these creative skills, I know how to cook really well, and you know, I have these sort of intuitive skills, and if AI replaces that, what happens to our ideas of habit? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there is a problem with this impulse to define human intelligence in whatever form that takes to define it against like what a machine can't do. So like the economist, Daniel Susskind, I don't think I mentioned this in the piece, but he, he talks, he uses this phrase called the intelligence of the gaps, mm. which is sort of an allusion to the God of the gaps theology, this idea that you attribute to God, whatever science can't explain at any given point. And he says that we're doing the same thing in definitions about human intelligence, where we sort of just say, well, you know, because machines aren't creative, that's what makes us human. And that's going to obviously keep changing and it's changing very rapidly as technology is developing, you know, very rapidly and taking on all sorts of new capacities that we didn't think about as machine-like in the past. And I guess my thinking in writing this piece, or I guess my hope in writing it was to just try to find a way to see habit apart from this mechanistic understanding. I think that in thinking about our relationship to habit, the solution is not to try to like outwit machines by becoming more spontaneous and flexible, which is what people in Silicon Valley want us to do, but rather like finding a way to see physical repetitive tasks as some sort of meaningful expression of embodied intelligence, as opposed to something that is just mindless and automatic. And I think that that probably requires paying more attention to the differences between our own routines and and mechanistic processes. So, Mm. you know, there's a lot of superficial similarities, I think, between habit and routine and what machines do in different contexts. But there's also, you know, the fact that habit, and this is something that a lot of the philosophers I talk about write about too, that 
habit is never totally mindless. Like even mm-hmm. the most ingrained habits, we still have sensory perception. So, you know, if you put like hemorrhoid crane on your toothbrush instead of toothpaste, <laughs> you're immediately going to realize that something went wrong. You know, we catch ourselves doing stuff like this all the time. And so it's that that sort of fluidity of habit, the, the fact that it does remain connected somehow to thought that makes it different from purely mechanistic processes. And that's something that you don't have, you know, with algorithms, you have to have somebody with human insight, sort of like looking, making sure that they're doing the right thing, if you can figure out what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the problem with like self-driving cars, where they do learn, but then they actually don't learn. And someone needs to be there to make sure they don't run over a pedestrian. Right. Yeah. That they're, um, and that's the type of thing too, that it's like, you realize when you try to automate driving, like just how much tacit knowledge we have and how much of our sort of split second reactions that we make where Mm -hmm. we're suddenly pulled out of this sort of like mindless activity of driving because you're, you know, you're reacting to an emergency. Like it's really difficult to sort of program into a car, you know, all of, all of the different possibilities and all the different sort of processes that your mind go through in that moment. And I wanted to, when you were writing this essay, did you do any research into cognition and how, you know, because we keep referring to this, you know, this sense of like being on autopilot or being more aware that our consciousness shifts at different times, depending on what we're doing. Has there been any sort of research on where our mind goes when we're kind of in that autopilot space? cognitively or even on a biological level yeah yeah I did do I mean I think a lot of the sort of some of the the popular habit books I mentioned like Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit he talks a lot about cognition and sort of the what your brain is actually doing I wrote a little bit about this in the earlier draft and then I was like not as interested in it but one thing I do remember, and, and this is something that Dewey talks about, and it's, there's also an example from Karl Popper's book about the mind-body problem, but this, this phenomenon by which when you try to explain something that you are able to do thoughtlessly, it actually makes it more difficult to perform. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's <laughs> this, they talk about, cognitive scientists talk about this, this thing called the centipede effect which I think is based on some sort of fable where somebody asks the centipede, like, oh, how do you walk? You know, how are you able to like coordinate all of your legs to walk together? And the centipede realizes that he can't explain it. And then he actually, after that, can't walk. And there's a, yeah, I think the example that Karl Popper uses of, is of a violinist who, you know, fellow violinist asks him how to play this really difficult passage from one of Beethoven's symphonies. And he says, oh, it's easy. And as he's trying to explain it, he realizes that he can no longer play it. So that's a really crazy phenomenon to me. I know like everybody's experienced this at some point where it's almost like if you pay too much attention to what you're doing, or if you try to verbalize it, it actually interferes with the fluidity of the task. And I think a lot of like those kinds of observations are really interesting because they sort of blur this like dualistic way that we think about you know, this sort of like Cartesian, like we have this very sovereign mind over right. this mechanical body. And it's like, no, our, a lot of what our bodies do is like very intelligent. And, you know, it actually becomes very difficult to like talk about that in these sort of dualisms that have, you know, colored Western philosophy for a long time. Yes. And I also, I don't even have a question, but I do love that you acknowledge what a deeply philosophical film Groundhog Day is. 
And then, because the screenwriter was like, he's been doing this for like 400 years. He just keeps, to, like, literally, like, this is, yeah, and, and, you know, sort of drawing the comparisons between Samsara and sort of how he, once he realizes what is happening, what he chooses to do with that repetition. It's kind of, it's kind of beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that either until I was like, I was like, I think I was listening to a podcast about Groundhog Day where, yeah, the screenwriter, you know, and there's like people who think, oh, he's been doing, he's been stuck in this time loop for a few weeks. And it's like, no, no it was hundreds of years where yes. he's doing the same thing. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that was another thing where like, I think during the early pandemic, everybody was comparing how, you know, life had become like Groundhog Day, everything was very repetitive. And yeah, there is this, this long, well, I mean, as, as old as the film is, I guess, this tradition of reading that film through different spiritual traditions, that mm -hmm. it's, you know, a form of perfectionism or sort of escaping the, yeah, the cycle of samsara, which is, yeah, an interesting way to, to, to read the film, I think. Yes. Bill, Bill Murray is inherently philosophical, I think. But. I agree, yes. <laughs> <laughs> because he doesn't care. He doesn't give a shit. I think that's the big key to happiness. But yeah. the conclusion of your essay points to laughter and shared humor as one possible, and at least at this moment, uniquely human corrective to what Henri Bergson called a mechanical thoughtlessness. And as we reach the end here, I wonder if you could offer our listeners any other practical thoughts on how to enjoy the benefits of habit without, you know, in Bergson's words, again, becoming machines. Yeah. Well, I think that one thing that all the sort of major thinkers on habit, you know, philosophically that they recommend is taking time to examine your habits. And so this was built into like the Stoics, you know, a lot of the Roman Stoics wrote about the virtues of habit, but they also had this tradition where every night you're supposed to review your day and how you use your time and sort of take stock of, of how your habits were functioning. And so I think that's, that's really important is to keep that, keep some sort of measure of reflective oversight on habit. And yeah, I, I love that. Henry Bergson, I, th I think the phrase he uses is something mechanical encrusted on the living. Mm. Where he talks about the way in which we can fall into these routines where we're acting thoughtlessly and how he, he actually, it's a very strange book on laughter. Where he's writing about how like a lot of humor is derived from the, the specter of somebody acting thoughtlessly and that we laugh at that because we're trying to remind ourselves that we, you know, have this flexibility as humans that we can return to, that laughter is sort of a social corrective and a way of, of sort of breaking out of that rigidity when we see ourselves as machine-like. And I, I talk at the end of the essay about how I sort of got to a place in my life where I was, <laughs> I was a little bit too rigid and sort of came to realize it in this humorous moment. And yeah, I think that, that that is something that is, again, uniquely human, that machines aren't able to laugh at themselves or have that kind of perspective. So I think that's important too. Yes, I would agree. Humor. Humor is, is underrated. Comedies are sometimes the best. Speaking of films or, or works of art, the comedy is sometimes the best teacher as opposed to stultifying drama. But I digress. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. 
Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.